Rumpole and the Eternal Triangle by John Mortimer Adapted by Richard Stoneman With me, Timothy West, as the elder Horace Rumpole And Benedict Cumberbatch as the younger Horace Rumpole I seem to remember that it was late June 1956 A hot night And we'd been taken by Claude Erskine Brown To listen to the Castorini Trio I realized the female violinist was very good-looking. Hair of a reddish gold, and her face was heart-shaped. She seemed to be smiling at me. Excuse me, uh, <clears throat> what can I get you, Erskine Brown? Um, I think, um, tomato juice. What I wanted was a large glass of Chateau Thames Embankment. Not much chance of that in a small pub tucked away in a mews off Wigmore Street... Packed with fans of chamber music and, as it turned out, some musicians. I was sure it was you. I'm sorry? Elizabeth Castorini, the fiddle player. Surely you remember. We met some time ago. Did we? I can't believe you've forgotten me. And you would be quite wrong to believe that, because, of course, I haven't forgotten you. Um, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd love to meet up again. Perhaps somewhere quieter than this? Would that be possible? Well, let me think. I was faced with the very earliest stages of a dilemma. Did I really want to be blown off course by this siren voice? Yes, sir. What can I get you? The barman gave me his attention at a most inconvenient moment. At the same time, the pianist from the trio came over and put his arm around the beautiful violin player, who happened to be his wife. Come on, Elizabeth, we've got to go. You'll ring me, Mr. Rumpole. Wimbledon, double five, six, four. And then she was gone. I pulled out a pencil and made a note on my program. What are you writing there, Rumpole? Oh, um, <clears throat> just wanted to remember the name of that tune they were playing. What was it again? Schubert's Piano Trio, number one in B-flat major. But it's printed all over the program. Ah. Maybe it was. But what I'd written down was Wimbledon double five six four. It was a week later, a long dull week doing a post office fraud in Acton, when I felt driven, for the sake of adding a little colour to my life, to dial that number on my programme. Elizabeth Castorini answered at once, in the soft out-of-breath voice I kept hearing in my head. I was going to ring you if you hadn't rung me. Jolly good. Well, what about a spot of lunch, then? Of course. I'd love to. Oh, good. We fixed on lunch at Rules for the next Thursday. On the morning of the assignation, I called in at Alfredo's barber shop in Fetter Lane for a shave and a trim. like... Ah, there we are, Mr. Rumpole. All done, sir. Ah, very neat and tidy, thank you. And will you try a little fragrancy? Hmm? Well, what exactly are you suggesting, Alfred? An American rather manly perfume. Old Spice. A very you, if I may say so, sir. Our younger customers insist it does wonders for your quality of life. May I splash a little? Oh. Splash away, then. <laughs> it was a day when caution was to be thrown to the wind. Oh, oh, ah, ah, ah. 
Hmm. Oh, yes. Rules in Maiden Lane was one of the few places in London where you could still find a decent steak and kidney pudding in 1956. Your usual table, Mr. Rumpel? Yes, I'm meeting some... Ah, there she is. When I turned up at three minutes past one, Elizabeth was already waiting. Sorry I'm late. Don't be silly. Smelling of fresh fields. While I had the uneasy feeling that I was giving off the odour of a cut-priced dance hall in Brooklyn. Well, now, I don't know what you'd like, steak and kidney or rare beef or, or Irish stew. You don't eat meat, do you? Um, has been known. Mr. Rumpel! Horace, please. Horace? Really? <laughs> yes, I'm afraid so. Uh, ready to order, sir, madame? Oh, uh, I think so, yes. What about a selection of fresh vegetables? Uh... Well, if you really think... I had, after all, come to see her and not the roast pheasant. Just vegetables for you, sir? Of course. The waiter took our meat-free order and disappeared to the kitchen. Elizabeth leant towards me. You look very nice. So... so do you. You strike me as being someone full of love. Love? Well... Uh, yes, I, I suppose I suppose I can love people, with a few exceptions. Mr. Justice Oliphant, for instance, and Sam Ballard. He's the head of our chambers. What's the matter with Sam? Isn't he lovable? I wouldn't say that being lovable was one of Soapy Sam's most obvious qualities. Then love him. That's what he probably needs most in his life. Have you chosen the wine, sir? Oh, uh, just about to do so. Really? Meeting you as quite enough stimulation for me. Stimulation? Don't you feel the same way? Uh, yes. I, I suppose I do. Then I'm sure we don't need wine. What's their water like? <laughs> I'd never tasted the water in rules. A, a jug of water, please. Nor anywhere else come to that. Excellent choice, sir. After the waiter had been dispatched to fetch a jug full of this unusual tipple, I asked Elizabeth... Why she wanted to lunch with me. Does there have to be a reason? Well, there usually is. <laughs> you say that because you're a lawyer. <laughs> I admired you so much when you were doing Billy's case. I thought then, and I still think now, that I'd like to get to know you just a little bit better. Um, Billy's case? Billy Palmer, from my college. I used to come to court every day to watch you defend him. You must remember. What could I say? that Billy Palmer rang no bell with me whatsoever, I took the line of maximum politeness. Of course I remember. Elizabeth pushed back her hair, looked down at the tablecloth, and confessed. I've been so lonely. But you're part of a trio. We play music together. We play pretty well. But Tom can't seem to accept that I'm married to Desmond. She began to tell me all about her life with the musicians. Desmond Castorini, the pianist, was her husband. Tom Randall was the hefty athlete astride his cello. Tom, it seemed, was terribly jealous of Desmond. And Desmond was inexcusably suspicious of Tom. In this welter of masculine emotion, Elizabeth felt left out, unconsidered, no more than an object that they were both fighting over. And Desmond made her nervous. Desmond has this wild blood inside him. What on earth do you mean? He's Irish. His father got involved with the Republicans, shot a man in Dublin. 
Desmond's still got the pistol. What pistol? The one his father used to shoot the man in Dublin. He gave the gun to Desmond before he went on the run. And Desmond keeps it in our attic, in case his father ever needs it again. You must get rid of it, Elizabeth. Take the pistol to the police. It's... Uh, no, I, I couldn't do that. Desmond would never forgive me, and if he got cross, Tom would notice, and then... You see, we're together all the time, the three of us. Mm. Sometimes I feel I want to get miles away from both of them. It would help so much if you and I could meet, just occasionally, so I could have someone to talk to. I don't see why that couldn't be arranged. I get the feeling that something awful's going to happen. Don't ask me what, exactly. I looked down and saw a strange sight. Her hand was on mine. It felt cool and comforting, as if there was no weight to it at all. She kept it there for a little while, and I have to confess I felt... something... Back in chambers, in the clerk's room, it seemed that other people were also feeling something. And when I stare into your eyes, those deep pools of lustful promise, and glimpse the soft breasts that lurk beneath your silk blouse, hear the whisper of your stockings when you cross your legs... You mustn't say those things. You know you mustn't. What the hell is going on in here? Henry! The first I heard of this peculiar scene was when I was walking back from the Old Bailey with Soapy Sam Ballard, QC, the alleged head of our chambers. Ah! Ballard, just the man I need. You seem flushed, Lord. How can I help? Oh, we're in deep, deep trouble. Good heavens. Someone has been trying to force their amorous advances on a defenceless and innocent young woman. A sexual proposition in chambers. When will you ever learn, Claude? Not me. Oh. Who then? I'll report further when I've got a full statement from the complainant. The who? The girl in question. Oh, I see. In my view, we must get her cooperation before we move an inch further. The reputation of three equity court hangs in the balance. I couldn't forget my lunch with Elizabeth Castorini. At odd and inappropriate moments during the day... I'd remember the look in her eyes, her faint, apologetic smile, as she laid her hand on mine. I felt there was something a little gross about my existence, compared to the purity of hers. No chops for me, thank you. What did you say? I said no chops for me, thank you. As a matter of fact, I'm giving up meat. Oh, quite yourself. I feel wonderfully well, thank you, Hilda. I'll just take a selection of vegetables. Boiled potatoes and cabbage. That's the only selection we've got. And what on earth are you putting into your glass? Water, Hilda. Anything wrong? Nothing wrong with water. It's just... It's so unlike you, Rumpole. People should be sufficiently intoxicated with each other. Why do we also need artificial stimulants? It's very nice of you to say that, Rumpole. 
notice a rather peculiar smell. It's an American fragrance she called Old Spice. I acquired a bottle from Alfredo's in Fetter Lane when I popped in for a haircut. A oh, haircut? Also got a new hat from Locks. The old one was getting a bit frayed round the edges. <gasps> Rumpole. You did all this for me. Well, it turned into an unusual evening in the mansion flat. As we sat at the kitchen table, I felt Hilda's hand upon mine. And she was looking into my eyes with, well, with affection. Ah, there you are, Dorothy. Everyone calls me Doc, Mr. Erskine Brown. And everyone calls me Mr. Erskine Brown. <clears throat> I, I'm glad you're here all alone, Dot. Are you, Mr. Erskine Brown? Uh, Dot, is there anything you'd like to tell me? But what would you like to know? I could tell you the time. It's one twenty-five precisely. You're young, Dot, and I'm sure this is uh, very embarrassing for you. But nowadays, well, girls of your age are much more open... About sex. Do you mind if I eat my egg and cress? Uh, not if it makes this easier for you. I'm sure you realise that men uh, do get these urges that come over them from time to time. I'll take your word for it. And, of course, you are an extremely attractive young lady. I'll do my best. I'm sure you do. The thing is, no man is entitled to show his feelings in the workplace. I agree with that. We get a short enough lunch break as it is. Uh, Dot, I I'd like you to feel that we don't have any secrets from each other. Really? You can trust me. And I want you to succeed in equity court. Perhaps rising from typist to junior clerk. Oh. And then, who knows? But f for your own sake, tell me what you feel. If you don't cooperate, we can't do anything about it. Now, why don't you just come into my room for a moment? I don't think so, Mr. Erskine Brown. While these events were unfolding in our chambers, a more serious and terrible drama was taking place in the poorly decorated and underheated block near Warren Street Station, where the Castorini trio rented an overpriced rehearsal room. On each floor, reached by an antique lift, there were a number of rooms from which the sound of music was constantly emerging. The Castorinis had a room on the fifth floor. On the fourth, a room was rented by Peter Matheson, a horn player who'd been at college with Elizabeth. At about a quarter past six on the evening of June the 28th, 1956, Matheson left his room as Desmond Castorini came down from the floor above. Hello there, Desmond. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, my God, Peter, can you help me? He seemed extremely agitated and said that something had happened to Tom Randall, the cellist. It's Tom. At that stage, it's Matheson Tom. noticed blood on Desmond's cuff. Is that blood? Oh. They went upstairs together and into the Castorini's rehearsal room. There, Matheson saw Tom Randall lying on the floor, his clothes blood-stained and his face drained of all colour. He had been shot through the heart. The police arrived on the scene at 25 minutes to 7. The body was removed to the mortuary, and the room was searched, photographed, and dusted for fingerprints. 
These proceedings were in the control of Detective Inspector Baker and Detective Sergeant Straw. It was Straw who found, in a space between the wall and the piano, an old Colt revolver from which one shot had recently been fired. Elizabeth and Desmond Castorini were playing a Brahms sonata in Red Lion Square when the police officers appeared behind the audience. No. No. Let's do this quietly, sir. Detective yes, Inspector Baker arrested Desmond Castorini and told him that he was charged with the murder of Thomas Paul Randall. After I read of the arrest in the Times, I tried to speak to Elizabeth. But there was just the sound of ringing in what I imagined to be an empty room and no reply. Three weeks went by and then she rang me in chambers. She wanted to see me urgently. I'd been wondering when I would see Elizabeth again and I was ashamed to find myself grateful to a murder for bringing us together. She brushed my cheek with her lips, mm. then took my arm Dear as she steered boss. me into the park. You will look after Desmond, won't you? I've told him all about the marvellous way you handled Billy's case. Ah, yes, Billy's case. It still rang no bells with me. I want you. Really? To defend Desmond. Uh, oh. In that case, I really ought to send my favourite solicitor, Bonnie Bernard, to take instructions from your husband in prison. Whatever you say. Can we forget the legal business for a moment? I wanted to see you anyway. I've never felt so terribly alone. I'm sure. It's so wonderful to have you on our side. Now I know Desmond's going to be fine. I can only do my best. And that will be enough. Can we meet again? Soon? I'm afraid I'm not supposed to talk to witnesses. Oh, Horace. I got another kiss on the cheek. Oh. more purposeful than the first, and then she walked quickly away. I watched her go, and kept on watching until she disappeared from view. One week later, I found myself in the interview room in Brixton Nick, with Bonnie on my left and across the bare wooden table, a pale and shaking Desmond Castorini. I've told the police everything I know. You must have read my statement. Of course we have. But uh, this message, for instance, written on a pad found by the telephone in your flat. Uh, Tom Rang wants to meet you at 6pm. Was the message addressed to you or to your wife? To me, obviously. Elizabeth wrote it. She'd hardly leave a note to herself. Did you think at this meeting at 6pm Tom was going to tell you that he and your wife were lovers? No. It never crossed my mind. Prosecution are going to suggest that you shot Tom Randall in a fit of jealous rage, did you? I give you my word, Mr. Rumpole. Any other tensions between you? Financial? No. Elizabeth's always taken care of that. She has some money, you see, from when her Uncle Max died. He left her a couple of thousands, so we've always been okay. When your wife was at college, she said I had defended a man called Billy. Oh, yes, she told me all about that. She and Billy Palmer were friends with another student called Alberman. There was some business with a stolen violin. Stolen violin. Now, that does ring a bell. I know Alberman went to prison. 
Billy got off thanks to your defence. Why don't I poke around in the archives, Mr. Rumpole? See exactly what happened in that particular case. Oh, I doubt it'll help us at all. Elizabeth remembers I was an impressive advocate. That's the point. Even so, perhaps I should, really. I'd rather you looked into the background of the late Tom Randall. Go through his accounts, check his personal history for any possible enemies. The usual sort of stuff. If you're quite sure, Mr. Rumpel. I am, thank you, Mr. Bernard. Now, turning to the murder weapon, you kept a Colt revolver at home with ammunition. I was just looking after it for my dad. I never used it. So how did it come to be fired? How did it come to be left behind the piano in the rehearsal room? Your guess is as good as mine. I don't wish to guess, Mr. Castorini. On the day that Tom Randall died, you turned up at the rehearsal room at 6 p.m.? Yes. And then... Well, I started walking up the stairs. When you got to your room, was the door open? No, it was closed, but not locked. You found Tom Randall inside? Lying on the floor. I knelt down and felt his heart. And that's how I got blood on my shirt and hands. Yes, yes, that will be part of our defence. Or possibly our entire defence. Mr Castorini, I'm sure you realise it's a difficult case... And we don't need to spell out the consequences if the jury find you... No, we don't need to spell out the consequences. I know I might hang, Mr. Rumpole, but I can rely on you. Elizabeth told me you're a wonderful man. Really? That was very kind of her. As Bonnie Bernard and I left Brixton, Nick, I tried not to think about Elizabeth... I reminded myself it was her husband who required my immediate attention. Mr. Bernard, have you ever known a villain leave his weapon at the scene of the crime? I suppose it's possible Mr. Castorini thought he'd hidden a pistol and intended to come back for it later. Mm. I mean, he couldn't walk out of the building with a gun in his hand, could he? No, I suppose not. I'm... I'm surprised you don't want to know more about the Billy Palmer case. Well, I doubt it's relevant, that's all. You're normally so keen to explore every avenue, Mr. Rumpole. Is there some reason you're not trying your hardest to defend Desmond Castorini? I shan't dignify that outrageous question with an answer, Mr. Bernard. The outrageous question was, in fact, a perfectly decent one. It took me a little while to answer it, honestly. Thankfully, Bonnie Bernard left no stone unturned. As my instructing solicitor began his investigation, my head of chambers neared the end of his own inquiry. Come. I fear I'm making very little progress. Oh. Hello, Rumpole. Erskine Brown. You were saying? Well, merely that Dot's giving little away about the propositions from which she's suffered. I can't get her to lodge a formal complaint. Can you not? Well, she's made a formal complaint to me. Has she? That's excellent. Excellent? I'm not so sure. Dorothy Clapton, to give Dot her full name, is extremely worried. Well, I'm not at all surprised. Henry's behaviour was unforgivable. Henry? She didn't say a word about Henry. But then who on earth is she complaining about? You! But Bella, she said you talked to her about terrible urges. No, I said I understood those urges. Since we all have them. Speak for yourself. And you promised to get her promoted to a junior clerkship. No doubt for a certain consideration. Ballard, that is a totally unjustified accusation. You never said it? Well, I may have said something like it, but what I meant... No, no, I want to be perfectly fair to you. 
I want to give you ample time to consider your defence. My defence? This will have to be decided at a full chamber's meeting. Until then, I hope you will have no further conversations with Miss Clapton. Well, really... After Claude had left in a state of indignation and dismay, Soapy Sam turned to me with an enigmatic question. You know what caused the decline and fall of the Roman Empire? I had to confess I couldn't quite remember. Lust, Rumpel. And flagrant immorality has reared its head all over this building. I will have to call on everyone to pull themselves together. I looked at the man. He was undoubtedly a pompous, blinkered, humorless prig. And yet I remembered what Elizabeth Castorini had told me I should feel about Sam. So I tried it out. I love you, Ballard. Was there? I love you with all my heart. I believe it's our duty to love everyone. And because of that, I can only say again, I love you. Ballard. I'd clearly gone too far and taken Elizabeth's advice too literally. Sam Ballard got up, extremely alarmed. Uh, another time, perhaps. I, I have to go. Moral decay everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> As the great proposition inquiry in Chambers came to a head, R.V. Castorini came to trial at the Old Bailey. The proceedings began in a routine manner with the medical evidence, and then Detective Sergeant Straw produced the revolver, which he had found in the rehearsal room. It was not very well concealed. Not particularly. And no fingerprints were found on the weapon? That is correct. Let us use our common sense about this, Mr. Rumpel. No doubt whoever did it removed the fingerprint so as to avoid detection. Does that make sense to you, members of the jury? I know it does to me. So is this your lordship's theory? My client was careful to leave his gun behind, although it could easily be traced to him, but took a lot of trouble clearing off the fingerprints? Or else wore gloves. Or else wore gloves. That's a possibility, isn't it, members of the jury? Mr. Castorini has agreed that the gun was his. Must have been mad to leave it at the scene of the crime, mustn't he? Mr. Rumpel, you know, we have a saying up north. As notes are queer as folk. You really, my lord? Down here, in the deep south, we're more inclined to look for some sort of logical explanation. After this preliminary skirmish, my opponent, Christopher Peake, a big, beefy QC with an unnervingly high voice, began to examine the horn player, Peter Matheson. And I just paused for a moment to empty out my valves when I heard them coming down the stairs. I'm sorry, Mr. Matheson. You heard who exactly? Tom Randall and Elizabeth Castorini. And you heard what they were saying? Oh, Tom was shouting. I'm going to tell him. I'm going to tell him, and there's only one way to stop me. I'm going to tell him? Uh, no doubt the him was Mr. Castorini, the lady's husband. My lord, there is no evidence to that effect. But we can use our common sense, can't we, Mr. Rumpole? Isn't this just another case of the eternal triangle? At the moment, all we know is that the three people most closely involved were a musical trio. A piano, a violin and a cello, nothing more. The judge, and I'm afraid the jury, looked a little sceptical. Nevertheless, I used my cross-examination of the horn player, Matheson, to try to inject some doubt into minds that were already made up. Did you hear a shot? 
No, I didn't. And did Desmond Castardini tell you straight away that he'd found Tom Randall dead and he'd no idea who did it? That's what he told me, yes. You said, I think, that you were at music college with members of the trio. Just Tom and Elizabeth. Desmond met them later. You knew Elizabeth well? At college, yes. I suppose I was a bit in love with her. Most men were. You can understand that, can't you? Uh, oh, you, you, you mustn't ask me questions. Especially not that question. It was far too close to something I'd been asking myself ever since my lunch with Elizabeth. Now was not the time to dwell on my inappropriate feelings for the young lady. Nor on my ambivalent feelings for she who must. Rockhold! Where are you? In the kitchen! Trying to work. You're probably wondering why there's nothing on the stove. Hmm. And nothing in the oven. That you are. Rumpole. Oh, what is it, Hilda? Have you even noticed what I'm wearing? <sighs> clothes? New clothes. New dress. And shoes. But why? I thought you'd like them. I'm not sure they'd fit me. Fit your hat and coat. We're going out for supper. That's impossible. I've got this whole pile of papers to read tonight. Wait. Bonnie Bernard has been going through the case of Billy Palmer with a fine tooth comb. It seems young Billy was one I am of... not interested in your case, Rumpole. I am not interested in your clothes, Hilda. And what about me? The question hung there for a moment. And then she who must turned on her high heels and clicked away towards the bedroom. Hilda didn't stir when I rose early the next morning. I crept out of the flat and made my way to the old bailey, where at 10.30, Christopher Peake, you see, announced that he was going to call Elizabeth Castorini as a witness for the prosecution. Where should I go? In as here. she entered the witness box, Elizabeth looked as beautiful as ever. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall... She smiled at her husband in the dock, and he smiled back. Confident, I'm sure, that she was there to help him. But if that was her purpose, she disguised it very well. Desmond was jealous, I think. Jealous of Tom and me, but for no reason at all. Jealous of Tom and me. And how did that make you feel? Scared, of course. Desmond had that gun. Desmond had that gun. As Mr Justice Oliphant wrote down every damning phrase... I prepared myself for a conversation with Elizabeth, not over a lunch table, but across a crowded courtroom. And my purpose wasn't to re-establish our friendship, or to move past that stage into something far less innocent, but to destroy her credibility. I spoke to her quietly at first, with tenderness. I thought it the best technique, and I found it extremely easy. Mrs. Castorini, if I can take you back to your college days... Please do, Mr. Rumpel. Uh, a student was charged with theft in your final year, I believe. David Alberman, that's right. The other three members of Alberman's string quartet were also charged. You know they were, don't you, Horace? I mean, Mr. Rumpel. She gave me a secret smile which I'm afraid I didn't return. I may know all the details of the case, but the jury don't. 
Did you attend the trial of your fellow students? I did. I was a friend of the viola player, Billy Palmer. You defended Billy, and you were brilliant. I'm sure we can take that for granted. <laughs> Mr. Rumpole, but I don't wish to talk about my own performance. I want to hear about one of the other defendants, a Tom Cogswell, who gave evidence against Alberman. Tom Cogswell? Uh, I'm not sure I remember. Oh, come now. Of course you do. Tom was the cellist in the string quartet. Alberman was the leader, playing on a violin lent to him by the college for a whole year. It was a violin made by Joseph Guaneri, worth about 3,000 guineas. But the violin that Alberman gave back to the college at the end of the year was a cheap imitation. Someone sold the Guaneri and replaced it with a fake. I don't know where you're going with this, Mr. Rumpole. If you keep your mouth shut and listen, you'll find out. Was what I should have said? It will all become clear very soon, my lord. Was what I did say? Alberman and the second violin player both went to prison, thanks to the evidence provided by the cellist, Tom Cogswell. But Billy Palmer walked free. Thanks to you, Mr. Rumpole, you are just so brilliant. Yes, yes, you keep saying that, but having reminded myself of the details of the case, I find, in fact, I did virtually nothing. Did... Virtually nothing. Billy Palmer had no idea that Alberman had swapped his expensive Guaneri violin for a cheap imitation. Billy was a viola player, almost incapable of hearing whether his own instrument was in tune, let alone whether someone else's violin sounded as good as it used to. Billy Palmer walked free because the jury believed he knew nothing about the theft. Tom Cogswell walked free because he helped the prosecution. Did you know Tom Cogswell? Not really. Even when he changed his name to Randall? Oh. Tom Randall. And joined your trio as the cellist. The cellist who was recently shot dead by someone. Could I have a glass of water? Please? In a minute, when I finished. Your trio got very little work at first, am I right? We had to make a name for ourselves. Three paid concerts in the first year, four in the second, and yet you managed to rent an expensive rehearsal room, pay for food and clothing and petrol. I'd been left some money. Ah, yes, by your Uncle Max. It was so sad. He was such a lovely man. He died very young. I don't think he did. What on earth are you saying, Mr. Rumpel? I'm saying there was no Uncle Max. I've checked Mrs. Castellini's family tree. Uncle Max did not exist. <laughs> then where did I get my money? You're really not supposed to ask me questions. However, on this occasion, I'll answer. I believe you got your money from the sale of a violin made by Joseph Guaneri. You were the mastermind behind the theft of that instrument. But David Alberman and the second violin player went to prison without grassing you up because, like so many men, they were both in love with you. This is outrageous, my lord! Yes, I would prefer to concentrate on this case. Not something that was dealt with some years ago, Mr. Rumpo. Even though the nature and the circumstances of that case are causally connected to this one, my lord? What? Tom Randall, the cellist from this crooked string quartet, knew all about Mrs. Castellini's involvement with the stolen violin, but he kept quiet. Why? Are you asking me or the witness, Mr. Rumpel? I am asking the witness if she paid Tom Randall 20 pounds every month. It seems from this that someone did. 
What have you got there? These are Tom Randall's bank statements. He got a regular payment, £20 every month, from an anonymous source. Was that you? Was Tom Randall blackmailing you? Blackmailing me? For what possible reason? He was going to inform your husband that you stole the Gwenary violin from your college. Then repeat that allegation to the police. Unless you paid him even more every month. No, no, that's nonsense. I'm going to tell him and there's only one way to stop me. <laughs> I'm much obliged, my lord. It seemed that Mr. Justice Oliphant was starting to see things from my point of view. The jury, too, were no longer smiling at Elizabeth. And I... I'm afraid that I was seeing her in quite a different light. On the day that Tom Randall died, what exactly did you do? I had a doctor's appointment at ten. I went to a lunchtime concert in Portland Place. I bought a dress and I had a drink with our agent at six. But you popped back home before then. You wrote a note for your husband on the pad by the phone. No. Exhibit nine. A small piece of paper with a scribbled message. Tom Rang wants to meet you at 6 p.m. No. Did you telephone and arrange to meet Tom Randall at the rehearsal room at 5.30? No, I didn't. I think you did. And I think you went to the rehearsal room with your husband's gun. No, I told you. I had a drink with our agent at 6 at the Warren Street Hotel. Which is just around the corner from your rehearsal room. So you had plenty of time to shoot Tom, hide the gun somewhere the police would find it, then go out to the fire escape and down to the street. No, please, stop. Who had a motive for killing Tom Randall? Might it be someone who wanted to stop paying him blackmail money and also shut his mouth? Not me. It wasn't. My lord, Mr. Rumpole is putting a whole string of suppositions to this witness. He's accusing her of the very oh, crime for which his client is on trial. How can these questions be relevant? Because, my lord, if the jury thinks someone else might be guilty, my client can't be convicted. I'm fully entitled to put these suppositions to the witness. Or does your lordship want me to argue the matter in the court of appeal? No, no. Let's use our common sense about this. No need to bother the court of appeal, is there? You go on at your own risk. I shall indeed, my lord. Why did you come here as a witness? The police asked me to attend. But you knew you couldn't be compelled to give evidence against your husband. They must have told you that. So you came here of your own free will. I wanted to tell you the truth. Or you wanted to make sure your husband got convicted for a crime that you committed. Oh. You told your husband to brief a barrister you hoped wouldn't attack you. A barrister who'd give you an easy ride. A barrister who might actually fall in love with you. Like almost every other man you've ever met. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Was what I thought, but did not say. My short, happy, but misguided friendship with Elizabeth Castorini was over. She left the witness box and the court, and I never saw her or spoke to her again. Three days later, her husband also left the court, sad, confused, but acquitted. Not long after the jury's verdict, Detective Sergeant Straw interrupted Elizabeth's practice to arrest her and charge her with the murder of Tom Randall. In spite of her high opinion of my brilliance, 
she did not call upon me to defend her. So my life returned to normal, which meant yet another chamber's meeting. This one was to reach a final verdict on the matter of the propositioning of Dorothy Dot Clapton. Erskine Brown was, unwisely, I thought, conducting his own defence. I heard Henry going on and on about her modestly hidden breasts and the swishing sound made by her stockings. No doubt you did, but... Uh, Rumpole, this is my inquiry. Yes, but I have investigated the matter, so with your lordship's permission... Uh, this really... Erskine Brown, have you ever heard of Miss Mildred Hannay? Miss Mildred... No, I don't think so. Have you forgotten that Henry is a thespian, a star of the Bexley Heath players? Dot Clapton is also a native of Bexley Heath with a taste for the stage. That ghastly dialogue about stockings and breasts was not Henry's, but the product of the fevered brain of the aforementioned Miss Mildred Hannay, a local author who has written a play especially for the group. What you had the misfortune to hear, Erskine Brown, was a rehearsal. Any further questions? Like a chop? Actually, a chop would be most welcome. Thank you. A pork chop made with meat from a pig? Mm, yes, please. Ah. You've given up on being a vegetarian. <clears throat> the last vegetarian I met was a teetotaler and a murderer. Not sure which was worse. No American fragrancy this evening. Nor ever again. What came over your rumpole when you started to smell so exotic? I met a lady in the meads, full beautiful, a fairy's child. I suppose you're talking about Elizabeth Castorini. La belle dame sans merci had us in her thrall. Oh. Do you still have that dress? The new one. Of course. And the shoes? Why? I thought perhaps we should go out for supper. Not tonight, obviously, but later this week. Would you like another chop, Rumpole? Thank you, Hilda. Hmm. You were never a fairy's child, were you? That's one thing to be said in your favour, old darling. In Rumpole and the Eternal Triangle by John Mortimer, the elder Horace Rumpole was played by me, Timothy West, and the younger Horace Rumpole was Benedict Cumberbatch. Hilda Rumpole was Cathy Sarah, Claude Erskine Brown, Nigel Anthony, Elizabeth Castorini, Faye Castello, and Desmond Castorini was Adrian Scarborough. Sam Ballard was Michael Cochrane, Bonnie Bernard, Matthew Morgan, Sir Oliver Oliphant, Geoffrey Whitehead, and Christopher Peake was Stephen Critchlow. Other parts were played by members of the company. Rumpole and the Eternal Triangle was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4. <laughs>